All right, so we we are back for Thursdays uh, at one today instead of noon, uh, but that's okay. And we're going to be continuing in First Peter chapter four. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter four, verses seven through eleven. So we'll read that and then we'll pray. So First Peter chapter four, uh, verses seven through eleven. And Peter writes this: The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory, or to him be long glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll start. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word and that you've given to us. Um, God, I pray that you would uh, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive what you have written for us. Um, that we would see that the end of all things is at hand, and that we'd see that as good news, um, and that we would act appropriately in these times, um, and that your son is coming soon, um, and that we would uh, see that you be glorified in all that we do. Um, God, help us, help us understand this text, help us to know um, what to understand and what to see. In your sons, let me pray. Amen. All right, so I kind of got a, uh, I don't know if the word silly is helpful, but I, I do have a very silly illustration uh, that I want to give. Um, so all of us have experienced at one time uh, or another two needs that arise at the same time to where one is more important than the other. And you have to decide, okay, which one should I go? Which one has more weight? Which one will have more impact uh, in the end? And again, this is, it's a silly way to think about it, but I think you'll understand what I'm trying to say. So let's say, for instance, you're at home and you have a heart attack. Um, you clench your chest, you feel your heart, I don't know, attacking, stopping, you know, throbbing, things are wrong. Uh, you scream, you shout, you have people around you to take you to the hospital. Uh, so they do, they take you to the hospital, um, and you're on your way there. Uh, they take you to the ER, they put you in, um, and of course you've been to a hospital when you go there. Uh, you have friends, typically your family, do all the paperwork, so they do all the insurance information and what, what your name is and why you're here and all this stuff. And as you're being wheeled on the bed to your room, you can't really do much because you're, you're, you're on the bed. Uh, you notice that you don't have your shoes on because you're too much in a hurry to get your shoes on, so whatever, you have no shoes. And as you're being rushed down the hall, the doctors know, okay, he's, he's, he's had a heart attack, we've got to get a cardiovascular surgeon to take care of this. But as, as they're pushing you, uh, they see your big toe is swollen, it's red, and you have an ingrown toenail. So what if the doctors, instead of getting a cardio surgeon, said, no, 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 let's get a podiatrist, let's get this toe taken care of first? We would think that's dumb. Because the more important matter is that they deal with your heart attack. Yes, the toe stings, uh, those t ingrown toenails are extremely painful, uh, but in regards to the situation, one thing is more important than the other. Uh, the token weight, the heart attack needs to be taken care of. This is more important. There's things that are more crucial depending on the situation. So I think we understand. Uh, so what's wrong with that approach is uh, there's more weight to certain things. Uh, certain things matter more than the other things. Um, and in this text, Peter starts off with something just like that. Um, he's going to point us to not, not only four things, but specifically here, four things that we need to focus on that are important, um, that we need to focus on, that as Christians, as believers, um, we need to have our hearts set on and to understand what he wants us to do. Um, and these are for our encouragement, they're for our good, um, and they're for us to understand why we're here and what to do. 
So in life, we have a lot of things to do. We have work and marriage and kids and school and bills and leisure and things to watch, things, time to sleep, things to do. But overall, Peter's going to say, as, as believers, here's the things I want you to focus on um, in, in particular. I mean, he's going to say these four things. Um, number one is prayer-directed thinking. Uh, number two is sacrificial love. Number three is hospitality. And number four, God's glory as the end goal. So prayer-directed thinking, sacrificial love, um, hospitality, and God's glory as the end goal or as the purpose of all these things. So first, he's going to take us into verse 7, which is going to set, to kind of set the scene, set the reason for why he's saying these things. Uh, it's not just random. Peter has a reason. And if you look at verse 7, uh, Peter opens with this. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Now, I think if you, if you understand what Peter's saying, he has the nerve to say something kind of offensive uh, in one way, which we're going to look at. Um, so if you think about how we are currently, um, everything in, in America, or at least, at least where we are currently now, is looking back to the good old days. So all of us think about our glory days in high school, how cool we were, how many good baseball games we had and all the things we did and uh we love all the shows of the 90s a lot more all of a sudden because it was the better shows they were a lot better to live back then and uh things aren't what they used to be we hear a lot and we wish that we could fit into our, our smaller jeans or have our cooler friends or have our better surroundings or whatever um, and all these things we wish we had and yet the world stands as object evidence saying that things are coming to an end uh, you're, you're growing, you're getting taller, you're getting older, you're getting weaker, you're getting shorter, you're getting, whatever's happening, things are getting worse. So we want to look to things that were better, and yet the world is constantly saying, actually, it's going to get worse. Uh, things are ending, the good, the good things are becoming bad, the, the bad things are becoming worse, and that's, that's the truth. It's either our health, or being cool, or our talent, or our looks, our things we have, it's all going downhill. Um, and with Peter... Uh, he's saying this for a good thing. So when we think about that, it doesn't really make any sense. Why is the end of all things? Why is things coming to an end? Why is that an encouragement? Why is it helpful? Or why should we like that? Um, and as believers, I think it's because when things slip through our fingers, it's because they're not meant to stay. We, we should be looking for something that's going to last. Um, Paul says something very similar um, in a different uh, book of the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, Paul says this in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if we, if we really look around, so if we actually have eyes to see and really look at things, um, we'll see that the end of all things, that things are coming to an end, whether it's your life or your job or families or the world in general, um, it's actually a good thing. So Peter says this as an encouragement, uh, particularly if you think of who he's writing to, Christians who are in immense suffering, who are being persecuted, who are... Literally every corner is just another death, another attack, another threat, another pain, more family dying, more Christians being slaughtered. And then Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. It's okay. It's going to end. People will die. Enemies will die. Suffering will be over. Pain will be gone. Uh, so Peter has the boldness to say this, but also it's comforting. So as a Christian, the end of all things is comforting. We should, we should enjoy, we should know that this is good. It's for our goods, for our soul to look forward to. So I think we, we need better thinking. So before we go into the, the commands, I kind of want to have us have like a agreed-upon phrase or maybe just a way to think about things. Um, I want us to kind of have the phrase or just the idea of seeing things with the eyes of eternity, as I, my wife and I kind of talked about. So you have eternity's eyes or you see things kind of like in the long run. 
So in the, long, in the long run, in the eyes of eternity, this doesn't matter, or these things don't matter, and these things will. That's what Peter's going to do. He's going to tell us things that in the long run, in the scope of eternity, with salvation and judgment and heaven and hell and all these things, certain things matter. And Peter's been doing this for the last three chapters. Uh, in chapter 1, there's at least eight references to either Christ's return or eternity or judgment or one of those things. Um, chapter 2, there's at least two of those. Chapter 3, there's two. And so far in chapter 4, there's been two just in verses 1 through 6. So he's talked about judgment, uh, return, Christ is coming, there's hope, there's heaven, there's judgment. He's talking about all these things. To make it very, very clear, um, we need to be aware there's something else. Um, and I think the constant reminder means that we constantly need to be reminded. So it's good that Peter does that for us over and over. So the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, we must act accordingly. So Peter's going to tell us first um, how to think and how to, and how to make those thoughts kind of into prayers and how to just prayerly, prayerfully think about things and be aware. So verse 7 says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Um, so we need clear thinking in the world. We need to understand how to think, how to think correctly, how to think properly, how to think clear. Um, Jonathan Edwards once said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. So Jonathan Edwards understood that we should look with things in such a way that we think about eternal things. Um, we should look and see what things really are. Um, he understood that we get entrapped in thinking about things as lasting forever. We get really caught up in how things will matter, how they'll look, and how we feel now, and how there's no tomorrow. It's just, it's just now. Things hurt now. Things are hard now. And we forget about what's coming soon. So self-control. Uh, self-control means it takes practice. So to control yourself, it's practice. It's not natural to us. I mean, if you see little kids, they have no self-control. They just squirm and run and flow their arms around. They have no self-control. Um, so as Christians, we have to have self-control in our thinking. Um, that means that when our thoughts wander and our desires wander and our feelings wander, uh, we need to bring them back. We need to grab them and bring them back. We need to control our thoughts, um, control what we dream about, control how we, not, like, not at night, but daydream, what we daydream about and how we understand things. It takes discipline. Man. It takes to be a Christian to do these things, which we'll get to soon. And in Philippians 4, Paul says to think about whatever is pure, lovely, and good, and praiseworthy. So your first start is think about godly things. Think about eternal things. So when you're walking in the world and thinking, um, see things as the eyes of eternity would see them. Will this matter? Is that person, does he exist? Well, he's not just a body. He's a soul with a body, right? So we understand how to see these things, how to see people. Um, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians to take every thought captive. So understand that your thought life as a Christian, it does matter. God cares what you think about. He cares what, what you look at, what, what you understand. Um, those things typically will flow into what you do. So God really cares about what you think and how you think. So let, your, let your, your thinking be controlled, so understand, subject it to Christ, see things as He would see things, um, trust and hope in what He wants you to understand. Being sober-minded is the next, next little charge Peter gives in the same one. I think when you think of being sober, um, I think of alcohol or drug influence or some kind of influence from outside of you. Um, and that's, that's the exact idea the Word has. So do not be influenced, not, not just by drugs or alcohol, those things are true, but don't be influenced by the, the ways of the world or sin or what the devil would have you do. Um, be tamed by Christ. Don't be tamed by anything else. Let him, let him have his reins on you and, and be controlled by what he thinks and how he understands. 
Uh, Philippians 2 says that we have the mind of Christ. So in, in Christ, you've you been given those desires, those intentions. Think on those things. Think how Christ would think. See how you would act. And we know how he would act because we have his word. So don't be tamed by the world. Don't be thinking how they understand and have things be politically correct and put in separate realms. Think about how Christ thought in his word. So again, God cares what you think. He wants you to be influenced by his word for your good and for the world's good as well. And Peter says this, so all those things are, it's interesting why he says that. If you look, it says, for the sake of your prayer. So a lot of times what you think about, you kind of pray about. The things I think about mostly are things that I pray about. So what's on my mind is what's going on. But if we're thinking about trivial things, things that you know, aren't going to matter, like maybe my stub toe, or I'm jealous at somebody, or I'm angry, um, we're not going to pray for the right things. Our prayers are going to be crooked. They're going to be mis- misled and misguided. So Paul says in Flip, or I'm sorry, First Thessalonians five uh, seventeen. It's three words, one verse. Uh, it says, "Pray without ceasing." So the only way that you can do that is if your thinking is correct. If you're thinking about godly things, seeing things in such a way that eternal matters. Are these things going to matter? Does it impact my life now? Will people be impacted by this in eternity? Will it affect their judgment day? Will it affect my judgment day? These things we need to be understanding and be aware of when we walk. And that has to do with suffering as well. So I'm very just one-track minded. Um, when something bad happens, I think this is the worst thing ever. What else could possibly happen? Tomorrow is irrelevant today. I'm, I'm in horrible pain today. I'm, I'm worried about today. Uh, there's so much grief I have to deal with today. And a biblical mindset would have you say what Romans 8 says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So eternal thinking says this is nothing compared to Christ. This is nothing. This pain is nothing. It's going to be gone. In 10 billion years from now, I'll, it's, it's gone. Nothing to worry about. I'll have 10 billion, jillion years of rejoicing and no more pain. So that's why we're called to see things, to see them through the eyes of eternity, to know that these things are trivial. Pain is it's not lasting. People are actual, they have souls. They're going to go somewhere forever. We need, we need to see people not just as friends or coworkers, but as they might die and go to hell, they might die and go to hell. But we are responsible for talking to them about those things and sharing those things. And as the Puritans would say, we, we should not be ashamed to trade this earthly flower for heavenly diamonds. So earth is great, but it's not that great. Heaven is, is, is our home, it's where we live, it's where we seek, and it's where we're going to be going. So the good news for us is as Christians, as believers, um, if you just think about how huge this is, um, Isaiah says that God is so, so sovereign and so big about the universe that all the nations are like a drop of water in a bucket. So that's how huge God is, how small we are. Um, yet as Christians, God hears me. He hears my prayer. He hears Kale. He hears me talk to him. He hears you talk to him if you're a Christian. Um, you have freedom to talk to him about anything you want, when you want, how you want. He loves you. Talk to him. And you don't have to worry about having a certain certain wording or being uh, cleaned up better today. Just talk to him. And pray for those around you. Pray for those you see. Pray for God to change your heart about what you act and how you think. I and mean, he will do those things because of Christ in us. So that's the, that's the command. It's not a burden. It's meant to be an open door to God with peace. So that's the good news of the gospel is you can go to him and see him and think about him now and do that forevermore. So from how we think and how our prayers are directed, Peter's going to go to how we love. So first it goes with vertical. It's how we pray. Now it's more horizontal, how we interact with one another. If you look in verse 8, Peter says this. Uh, above all, so Peter said this is, this is extremely important. Above all, 
Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Um, lately, Peter's been doing a lot of citing of texts. Uh, in chapter 1 and 2, he goes to the Psalms and Isaiah. And in chapter 3, he goes to the Psalms as well, multiple times. Um, so Peter likes to cite things. And this is actually uh, a, a close citation of a proverb. Um, it's Proverbs 10, 12, and it says this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And for me, it just, at first glance, the verse is kind of, it's kind of troubling. Okay, how, if I love someone, how can I just let things go that they do? That's not, that's kind of, that's hard. It's, it's maybe weird. Um, if you love them, just let it go. Don't bring it against them. You know, that's, that's hard for us to do. So what that means is when you're sinned against, and, and this could be any context, maybe you lose your job because someone lied about you at work. You lost your job. Um, people in first century were getting lied against, probably saying that they blasphemed God and they blasphemed Caesar, they get killed for it. And Peter says, no, 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 look, love covers sins. It almost seems unjust. It seems, well, I have to suffer for something I didn't even do. Because anytime you love someone, you're going to suffer somehow. Either you're going to give of yourself or they're going to give to you, and that requires suffering. So how does love, how do you love someone and cover, cover their sins? How does that happen? Unfortunately, Christians are the ones who should be the most loving, but oftentimes, sometimes, we do hurt believers or we're hurt by believers. Those things really happen. So again, how do we love people? How do we love Christians or our spouse or our friends or our parents or our workers and yet cover their sins with our love? How do we do that? So I think what I think what we understand is love isn't saying when something's wrong. Okay, if you're sinned against, love doesn't say, "Well, that's not wrong." Love would say, "No, that, that that's wrong. Sin is sin. It's evil. It's ugly. Call it what it is." If you're sinned against, you don't say, "Oh, you know, that was it's no big deal. It's okay." I mean, they did something wrong. It's it's okay to call it sin. Um, if First John says that God is love, that means that God doesn't like sin either. So God hates sin. So it's okay for us to say, "Sin is sin." Love doesn't just not count sin sin. It doesn't trying to say it's okay to call something evil. But in 1 Corinthians 13, I think we, we typically call it the love chapter, uh, verse 5 says this, um, Love does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful. Uh, the NIV, which I'm more uh, known with back in the middle school, um, I remember hearing it read, Love keeps no record of wrongdoings. So it's not resentful. So it, it doesn't keep a track record. It doesn't record and say, well, you did this to me. Remember that? So that's what love doesn't do. So love doesn't keep bringing up offense. It doesn't keep dragging you over the coals saying, remember what you did? Remember? Remember? Remember how bad you were? Remember how what you did to me? That's not what love does. Love does see evil, but it doesn't bring it back up. So it's not resentful. And I think oftentimes um, Christians are led astray in this, uh, that we think we should just forgive and forget. And I think some of that's good and some of that's bad. Um, Christians should forgive, but we can't always forget, and I think that's okay. Um, sometimes evil just lingers. It just stings. It lasts a long time. And each time you see that guy, you think, man, he really wronged me when I was a kid or wronged me when I was 12 or wronged me last year or whatever. It's okay. That's not wrong. But what's wrong is when you say, hey, remember that time you screwed me over? Remember when you lied to me? That's when it's wrong. So it would be wrong for it to say you have to forget. But what's not wrong is to forgive. And forgiving requires you to sacrifice something. It requires how you think. It requires your which you really want to do, just, man, I just hope something happens. I want God to forget, to do something, to work, to plead, to be involved. 
So how do we do this? I think we need to look to the, to the gospel. Um, how does God love you, yet not count wrongs against you, yet God knows all things, but doesn't bring it back to your account? How does God do that? Um, Isaiah 43, 25 says this, uh, God speaking. It says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So we know that God does not have amnesia. He, he doesn't think, now, what did Cale do when he was last year? I forgot what he did. God doesn't have amnesia. We know he doesn't do that. He knows all things. But what Peter is saying here, how love covers sin, what Paul is saying that love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, what God is saying in Isaiah is really the same thing. To love someone, love requires a covering of sin. And in Christ, God's Son covers our sin. And in that, God, is, God no longer counts sin against me. Yes, it happened, but God doesn't remember it as in the sense that He doesn't bring it up. It's no longer in my judgment. It's gone. My sin's been washed clean. I still did those things, but in Christ, they're covered. So on earth, when someone sins against you, you cover it up. You say, you know what? That was wrong. But love requires me to give of myself to say, it's okay. It's not okay, but it's okay. And I'm not going to sit here and say, you did this to me so many times. Love does not count records of wrong. It doesn't bring it up. It's covered. It's forgotten. It's done. And you move on. Just as Christ did to us. So how does that make you want to love one another? It's hard. Loving this way is hard. Uh, if you like the, the words of love, people like these things. Uh, the word for this is agape. So keep loving one another. I'm sorry, the love covers multiple sins. Agape, that requires giving of yourself. That sacrifice as God did through us in Christ. What's interesting is the reason why we can let things go. And this is helpful for me just to think about and process that you, as you're wronged and understand why. Um, when you're sinned against, um, especially by a, a believer, or even just you being a believer and having someone who's not a Christian sin against you, and you can't forgive them, uh, it says one of two things. Either, um, if it's a believer, Jesus' punishment was enough to forgive that sin, so you should hold a grudge. So yeah, Jesus died for it, but your, your, your sinning against is way bigger than God's sinning against. Or them sinning against you is bigger, is higher than them sinning against God. So really it's kind of the same thing, but the idea is, who's more offended in sin, you or God? That's the question we have to answer. And according to the Bible, God is the most offended party. So if God can forgive sins and wipe it clean, Christian, we should be able to do the same. And say, man, the Almighty had to kill his son to forgive them. I can let it go. It's okay. They, they sinned. God will deal with it either in heaven or in hell. He, he will deal with them. And he will. So as believers, love one another. Give of yourself. That requires sacrificing something. You absorb the debt somehow. Um, and you, you let things go. You trust it to God. You trust that He is good and He will take care of it and that He sees it and He will take care of it either on Christ or in, or in hell. So Peter says, above all this, uh, all, all the horizontal things, love people so that Christ looks good. Love sinners as you are loved. Love those in, in Christ as you are loved so that Jesus will be made known. So next, Peter takes us to the next uh, one another. He uses this phrase again. Um, I think this is a, almost like a commentary or a, a way you can actually do verse 8, which I think is kind of helpful. Uh, so Peter says this in verse 9. He goes to hospitality. So verse 9, Peter says this. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And in case you didn't know, the dictionary says hospitality means Friendly receiving of guests or strangers or friends. Um, so today, a lot of times we think uh, being a friend or being hospitable 
is as long as you like their Facebook post, uh, you text them, you see them at church. You guys are hospitable, you're great friends, you're welcoming, and those things are helpful and they're true. But being hospitable is kind of like love. It requires you to give up something, to sacrifice something uh, for the good of somebody else. Um, being hospitable requires you to open your home and to open your dinner table and say, come in, come eat, come eat with us. Let's, let's share a meal, let's watch a game, let's play a game. It doesn't matter, but come into my home and we'll give something to you. We'll sacrifice something we have. Um, and that is required to invite believers or unbelievers. Peter doesn't necessarily say which one, so I think you could apply to both. I think one other could be the church and also unbelievers alike. So sacrifice in this, you think about it, you're requiring you to give up maybe your free night, uh, money for meals, a TV show you don't you don't want to watch, um, a muddy carpet with the track it in mud, uh, spilling punch on your favorite chair, whatever. Um, we do these things because that's better than doing nothing. We would rather have the, have the benefit of them um, hearing the gospel, um, encouraging them in, in their marriage, talking to them about Jesus, than our couch getting stained. And that's okay. What's really neat is this practice early in the church. If you look in Matthew 9, uh, Jesus calls Matthew to himself. And then immediately after the very next verse, right after, um, Jesus has dinner with tax collectors and sinners in, in a house. Now, most commentators will say, because Matthew used the phrase in the house, so not a house, but in the house, and with, and with verses below and above, they think this is actually Matthew's house. So they think as soon as Matthew got saved, he said, hey, let's go to my place, come on. But the point is, is Matthew opened his house up to Jesus, to disciples, and then it says to sinners and tax collectors. So you have a bunch of guys who don't belong, who do belong, saying, let's share a meal, let's lay back, let's hang out, crack some stories, eat some dinner, and talk. Then in Acts 2, you see the early church doing the same thing. They're breaking, they're breaking bread, they're having meals in each other's houses, they're sharing, they're having communion with each other and enjoying time. So this, this is basic Christian discipleship. It's a basic Christian thing. Um, again, we do it because in eternity, uh, that, that day will matter. Um, the day that you spend with someone maybe talking about their marriage, that will impact their marriage with Christ. They'll impact how they think. They'll impact how they treat their children. Uh, the time you spend with an unbeliever in your house, it will affect where they go. Somehow you are you're involved in that. Um, you're preaching the gospel to your friend who is struggling with sin. That will affect what they do with their sin. These things really do matter. What you do with people in your house, whether it's five minutes or 30 minutes, it will affect them somehow in eternity. It really does matter. Peter cares about it. God cares about it. And it's good for us to do. And we do because Jesus stepped down for us. Um, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Jesus left his heavenly home to step into our sin-cursed world, to live and die, that he might say something that I think is, I hear it a lot, I remember hearing it from an older man, I think when I was 16, thinking this verse is so strange, uh, but now um, I love it. That's John 14, Jesus says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. Where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus practiced hospitality. He stoops down and says, You're coming with me. And it's not just being in a house. It's, it's, it's an eternity. We're welcome to the Father's house forever. I mean, in His eternal dwellings, we get a free room, free room board forever with, with, with the Son of God. That's <laughs> cool to think about. Uh, we get to be neighbors forever. And that's because of grace. And I like what Peter says here at the end. It's almost like an afterthought for most of us. 
um, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So you can't say, all right, come in, you jerks. Come ruin my house. Come on, whatever, it's fine. I have to do it. I'm a Christian. I have to do it. Uh, what if God sent Christ in the same way? I guess you can go ahead and save him if you want to. I mean, it's fine. You know, Jesus, okay, I'll, I'll save some sinners. We would be repulsed. So as Christians, God took delight to save you. How much more should we take delight to invite those into our house to, to be saved and to hear Christ and to enjoy their communion and hear the gospel and talk about their marriage, talk about sports we don't care about? It's okay. It's for them and for Christ. That's why we do it. So being hospital means giving of yourself and your possessions for the good of others. That's what it means, just as Jesus did for us. Lastly, the end goal. Why, why do we do these things? So this is what matters most. So Peter does this very well. He starts with uh, the thing, which is vertical, which is with God and prayer and how you think and how you interact. And then it's horizontal. It's one another and then one another. And now it's going to go to the bottom of all these things. Um, Peter's going to tell us how to do and why to do these things, which is for the glory of God. Um, if you're like me, you compare yourself a lot to other people. I think it's very common. We kind of think, well, I'm not as gifted as so-and-so. Or, you know, I'm not as hospitable as that guy. That guy's house just works better. They cook better. Or I'm just not as Or I'm awkward. Or I don't have a cool TV or whatever. We think of these things for excuses to not be hospitable or not to love or not to pray more or whatever it is. We, we get discouraged and think about these things. But the good news is it's actually not about you. That's what we get worried. We think, man, if I was more this way, it'd be easier. Or if I was more like this, it'd be easier. And But the good news about this is it's not about you or how you do it or what necessarily you're doing, but about why it's being done and who's doing it all. And Peter brings us to those things. So if you look at verse 10, uh, Peter says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's Varied, the Greek word means multi, so multicolored grace. So first, um, Peter says that each of us has been granted this gift. So um, again, uh, the reference here is most likely spiritual gifts, because verse 11 talks about um, doing things that Christians do, so this is a spiritual gift talk. But the point is, all believers have been given things by God for them. Um, it's, it's neat to think that God designed, again, it's cheesy, but God designed you to be you. Um, he didn't want to... John Piper's or two Kales, thankfully. He wanted just one. That's why he only made one, which is good. Um, and your weaknesses, your strengths that he's given you and gifted you in um, are for those means um, so that God will look good and that you would be serving him. So we think, here's a, a neat way to think about, I think, what God's done. Um, God's granted you to be you and gift you with these things so that you can providentially reach only those you can reach, have access to only those people you can have access to, only those who you know, who trust you, who know you, there's only people that there's only people that like me that don't like Jared. Just, I have people who like me who don't like Jared because they don't know him. I feel that like Andy, but don't like me because they know anybody and don't know me. You know, Andy can reach him, I can't reach him, and that's good. God's gifted certain people to have certain qualities, certain things that people will say, "I like that in that guy." But if I had it, they would they would hate it because I couldn't do it well. So when we get jealous and get frustrated, know that providentially that is meant by God's sovereignty to work in that way. So each Christian, Peter says, has received something that God's given them for these means, to win souls, to track people, to get them saved, to hear the gospel, to love them, to serve them as God's gift of grace. So again, you're not the owner of what God's given you. You're, it's kind of just on loan to you. God's given it to you. So be a good steward. Use it well. Take care of it. Grow it. Share it. Display it. Don't be wasting. Um, he's given it to you for others. So God has given you things to give. 
Um, he graced you to, to grace others, you could say, or he's given you to give or served you to serve. How do you want to say that's fine? But God's given you these things, not for you, but for others. So we're called to do those things. And it's freeing to think that way, um, that God does not demand so much from you. He says, just be faithful to what I've given you, be faithful. I give me these things, and I'll go do it. It's okay. And invite people into your home. Do what you can. Be as kind as you can. Show the gospel as much as you can. And I'll do the work. Which Peter gets to next. Verse 11 says this. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So God gives the gift, we just saw. God works through the gift, we see again. And now we see that God gives the strength to do the gift that God commands that God supplies for God's glory, for God's good, for people's good to see. It's very God-centered. The whole text is extremely all about God. Um, and what's cool to see is all gifts are really broken down into two categories. That's uh, speaking or serving. So either you've been given some ability to speak, to teach, to present the gospel, to articulate things well, to, to preach or be given away to somehow do some kind of physical serving of others in, in, a, in, a, Christian, in a Christian context. Um, so all gifts are really kind of placed in those two categories. So when you speak, speak God's words. Um, use verses, gospel truth, uh, encouragement from God's word, or wisdom from Christian men um, that God's taught them um, in order that it's God's word being provided. So people will say, man, God's word really does those things. So it's not you getting credit. It's not your great wisdom, your great understanding. Uh, it's God's word. Uh, great men get credit for God's word all the time. That's how it should be. It should be God's word getting credit for. When you serve, you serve in such a way that you're relying on God. God, I really am struggling to do this. I need you to help me. Just that simple, I think. And God grants those things. So what's the purpose of all these things? Um, English is very helpful. It says, in order that. So, so that, because of, so this. I'm in order that in everything, in all these things, in your gifting, in your hospitality, in how you pray, how you love, how you give of yourself, how you speak, how you serve, all these things, so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So the purpose of everything is that God will get glory. So he'll get glory for his word being spoken, for his word being served, for people invite people into their homes, for leading on his strength to do the things he asks, for using your gifts, for praying for sinners, for showing hospitality, for doing all these things, God gets the glory. So that everything, Christ has seen. That's the point. Because to Him belong, it says, belong glory and honor and dominion forever. So glory belongs to Christ. It's His and His alone. He gives the gift. He grants the gift. He gives the power. He gives the design. He gives it all. So it all belongs to Christ. And it helps us to live in such a way that helps us see the eternity. Everything matters about Christ. The one thing that Peter says here, so he says in the same paragraph, it's very interesting, that the end of all things is at hand, yet he ends it by saying something's going to last forever and ever. So things are ending, but there's a, there's a forever and ever, and that's, that's Christ. That's the glory of Christ. So all things are ending, yet the one thing that we're supposed to do here on earth that will never end is spread the supremacy of Christ, the glory of Christ. Because that's the one thing that we'll sing about forever and see forever. So let's do it here now so that we'll see it in eternity. And that's why Peter points you to those things. Let's pray. Um, God, we love you. Um, God, we thank you for your son uh, who was slain for us um, and risen for us in our union with him. Um, God, help us to, uh, to, to do these things well. 
Help us be faithful to your word to speak and to serve and to give in such a way uh, that you are glorified, that people see and savor your son. God, we trust you. We know that you're working all things well. Um, Help us not to hope in empty things. Help us to know that the end of all things is at hand. Um, And that's good news. It's good news for us. God, we love you. We trust you. Help us to point others to Christ and to see your glory spread forever. And so your sons, let me pray. Amen.